Good morning, church. I'm Keith Maloney, and I'm the visiting preacher today. <laughs> kind of feel like that after so long, but uh, I, I was humbled that uh, the elders asked me to uh, undertake the, the effort to look at a vision for the church, how God wants to lead us into the future. Uh, and I thank you. I appreciate very much your prayers during that time. They were very, very much felt and most appreciated. And I hope that you will continue to pray for our elders as they, as they work through these things and, and wrestle with this to see how we can best go about our mission, our vision for, for being God's people here in, in this place. Uh, it is a, is a sobering task, but, a, but an incredible opportunity that lies, lies ahead of us. And then, of course, uh, just as that effort concluded, uh, we went into the three mission Sundays, which extended further my, my being out of the pulpit. And I uh, appreciate all the, the wonderful blessings that God gave us during all of those times, uh, especially last week with the, the contribution that was given. It was just wonderful. Thank you for letting God work through you in such a wonderful way and, and to position us to do some great, great efforts for the kingdom of God. It's really, really neat to see God, God at work, and, uh, and we thank you for that. I, I would ask that you continue to pray for our elders and continue to pray for me in the, in the role that I have. In fact, would you, would you join me now? Let's, let's start with a prayer. Father, you are so great and so good. You're so loving, so incomprehensibly holy. Lord, though we only see glimpses of your majesty and your holiness, we are awestruck in wonder at what we behold. And we today ask that the power of your truth not be diminished by the feeble efforts of the one communicating. For his sins are great and his ability is small. But allow us, O oh God, to hear and to understand your word for us today in a way that will enable us to become what you call us to be. And in return, we will give you all of the glory. For we pray it in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus. And amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 20. Uh, it's the passage that Shane read just a few moments ago, Acts chapter 20. We're going to begin in verse uh, 6. Uh, Acts is the fourth, the fifth book in our New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And chapter 20 is right after chapter 19 and right before chapter 21, in case you were wondering about that. Uh, this is a, a very dramatic and powerful example of the focus and purpose of the times when believers come together as we are today. You may have heard about the, uh, the little boy that was out in the foyer waiting on his mother to get finished in the ladies' room to come into the church service. And, and he was a first grader, so he was enamored with reading. He just loved reading, trying to read anything that he could see. And as he stood there in the foyer, there was a plaque with a, a little inscription and some names on it. And he was trying to make out those words when an usher came up and asked him, he said, you know who those people are? And the little boy said, no. Usher said, those are the members of our church that died in the service. 
And his eyes got real wide and he said, first service or second service? (laughs) You know, when you hear about somebody dying in a service, it kind of makes you nervous. Don't really want to get involved in that. I've never been in a church service where somebody passed away. But I was... I was in a place one time that I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I was just a little boy. I was older than first grade, but I was still in elementary school. And we had come to church on Sunday night, 6 o'clock Sunday night, when you're supposed to come to worship service on Sunday evening. And it was a typical Sunday. It was just like any other Sunday. Well, there was one exception. We were having a visiting missionary that was going to be preaching that evening. Otherwise, everything was just normal. But about halfway through the service, down at the front, right over here in, in this corner, there were, there were a couple of doors that went into a little foyer and then other doors that went outside. And that door opened just enough for an arm to come through. And the, whoever it was had a bottle that was filled with ammonia and some other things and he tossed it in. It landed about right there and crashed, just shattered on the tile floor of the church. And those noxious odors spread everywhere. It was awful. I I would call it a stink bomb. That's probably not a technical term for it, but it wasn't anything that was explosive. It was just horrible. And those, those, those odors, those vapors were lighter than air, so they rose, and the guy up at the front right next to it that was higher than anybody else got a bigger dose of it than anyone, and he was overcome with those fumes. So they called an ambulance, they came, and they administered first aid, but after a while, they'd opened the doors, and the air had cleared out, and he kind of revived, and, and he got back up and finished his sermon, and I was really impressed. In fact, I was really impressed the next day when in the newspaper there was an article about it and the headline of the little article said, Preacher finishes sermon after attack. And I thought, wow, that's really something. I remember that. But that was nothing compared to what happened in Acts chapter 20 at the service that they were at. Now, there were some similarities. It was, uh, it was a, a service in the evening. They got together at night like we did. There was, there was a... Of all things, there was a visiting missionary that was preaching just like at the church I was at. And, and there was something that happened that was totally unexpected that brought everything to a screeching halt. But that's where the similarities end because what caused everything to stop then wasn't an attack by anybody, but it was a far worse outcome because somebody died. So let's, uh, let, well... Look here, yeah, but before we do that, let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever been there? I mean, I'm not talking about seeing an attack at church or seeing somebody die at church even. I mean, have you ever gone to church just expecting the normal routine thing and, a, you know, a, a, bit of, a bit of calm, some stability, a, 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 a slice of peace, in the midst of this hectic, chaotic world that we live in. But when you get there, instead of finding that, instead of finding peace, there's just more problems. 
Instead of finding some clarity, there's just more confusion. Instead of having some calm that you can experience, you just encounter more chaos. And instead of getting lost in wonder at the glory of God, you just are left wondering why it has to be so hard, why things have to be like that. Have you ever, have you ever felt like that at church? Well, if you have, I think, I think this passage really has something to say to you. Because when, when this missionary named Paul showed up to preach at church that night, it first turned into a nightmare that no one would have dreamed. And then just as quickly, it changed into a time of celebration that was beyond anything they, they could have imagined. Paul was, Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem when he came to this city uh, called Troas. He was, he was going back to Jerusalem to try to deal with a, a problem that was brewing between the, the Jewish believers, the, the Jewish followers of Jesus there, and their countrymen who weren't followers of Jesus, who weren't believers. And on his way back, he was doing something different. He had spent his life going into all these different places, all these different towns, and when he would go there, he would typically always go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day because that was the day they came to worship, the Jewish people. And he went there because they had some background. They had some awareness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that was a common place to begin talking about Jesus. But now his mission is a little different. Now he's not going to try to go into new cities and, and bring people to Jesus Christ for the first time. Now he's going back to the places he had been to before. And he is talking to them to encourage them. And so instead of going on Saturday to the synagogue, he goes on Sunday to the place where the Christians, the believers are meeting because they met on Sunday in honor of the resurrection of the Lord, which happened on a Sunday. In verse 7, we read, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. That, that term, breaking bread, is how Luke describes the Lord's Supper or the communion service that we still celebrate when we come together today. The expression goes all the way back to the night that Jesus was betrayed, right before he was, was delivered up to be crucified. Because Jesus, back in Luke 22 and verse 19, Luke says, describing that night, he says, and he, Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And, and with those words, Jesus reached back into centuries of Jewish history and heritage and meaning and drew that into the present. Because what, how, what God had done in the past to deliver his people, he was about to do in a greater way than ever before. That was, that was the reason, according to what Luke says here in, in Acts 20, that's the reason they came together. I mean, they, they, they may have sung some hymns, some songs, 
That's very possible. They, they often did that, but, but that wasn't the reason they came together. They, they probably prayed. I, I can almost, I'm all, almost certain they, they had some time praying together, but, but that wasn't, wasn't really the reason they came together. We know that they had some preaching. Boy, did they ever have preaching. Makes my sermons look short. But that wasn't the reason they came together. The reason they came together, according to this, was, was to come together and observe that, that communion time, that Lord's Supper. Well, when they came together to do that, it set the example for what we come together for today. Now, unfortunately, these days, Christians coming together is not always for that. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of been pushed aside a little bit often. Uh, lots of churches, Protestant churches, uh, don't often observe the Lord's Supper when they come together. It's kind of an unusual thing, just done every once in a while. Uh, now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I do not believe Acts 20 and verse 7 lays down some kind of legally binding precedent that says you have to do it and you have to do it like this and if you don't, you're somehow in rebellion against God. There's no indication from the text that that's the case. And unfortunately, a number of very sincere, God-loving, well-intentioned people have taken that view that says you just got to do that or you're just not right with God. And, and that's had some, uh, some unfortunate outcomes, okay? I, I mean, for one thing, for, for other believers who don't necessarily see it that way, it's sort of created a battleground. And the irony of that is it's a battleground over something that was to represent and to, to help us remember and be impressed with the event that brought the greatest peace and reconciliation the world has ever known. For another thing, even for people that do believe that's something that we need to do every single Sunday and we just insist on doing that, it, it can tend, if, if we look at this as primarily a, uh, a legal thing that you got to do it, you got this is when you have to do it, and this is how you have to do it. What, it. what it does is it tends to push us into looking at it as something that's kind of mechanical or even mundane. And, and you know, whether, it, whether it's for people that don't see it that way or do see it that way, neither one of those are what Jesus intended, I'm convinced. It's not what he had in mind when he said, I want you to do this. I do believe this text indicates, though, that the Lord's Supper was the focus. That was the reason they came together. It was the, the seminal, it was the, it was the central event of the times when Christians gathered together for worship. Having said that, this was not written to tell us when or how to take the Lord's Supper. And, and the, the real tragedy is when we look at it that way, 
we miss out on the really deeper meaning, the more significant thing that I believe this text communicates to us. Well, Luke tells us they were, they were in this upstairs room. They came together at night. I mean, Sunday was not a day off in the Roman world of the first century, okay? In that culture, it was a work day. So naturally, they would gather together in the evening. They, they came together that evening, and because it was evening, they had to have lamps in the room. It was an upstairs room. There were a lot of people in the room, a lot of lamps going on that not only generate light, they generate heat, and they suck up oxygen. These are, these are burning uh, oil lamps. And so it got real stuffy in that room. And the longer they were there, the stuffier it got. And there was a young man there, a guy by the name of Eutychus, the, the Latin term for that would be Fortunatus. We would call it in English today, we would call him lucky. That was kind of the the gist of his name. Now, he kind of wasn't so lucky, but then he was lucky if you want to look at it that way. But his name was Eutychus. And Eutychus was probably a teenager. The, The language Luke uses to describe him indicates he's not a little kid, but he's probably not a full grown man. He was probably a teenager. Maybe he had been, maybe he had been out working that day, worked hard and he was tired, or maybe he was out in some kind of sports or something like that. But anyway, he was worn out. And the later into the evening he got, the harder it became for him to keep from nodding off. Now, folks, there's a lot of people. Nodding off in church is a long-standing tradition. Started in the Bible, okay? And trust me, we keep that tradition going here at Greenville Oaks every Sunday. We really do. Here's some interesting stories about people nodding off. I I don't see really bizarre things. I see a lot of people nodding off from time to time uh, when you're up here. But but sometimes people fall into the aisle and fall out wherever. If you, if you feel like you're about to go to sleep, I've got a great suggestion for you. Go out in the parking lot to the mobile blood center and give blood. That'll wake you up. That'll, I promise you, you will not go to sleep, all right? But Eutychus didn't have any kind of distraction like that. So he winds up sitting in a window to get some fresh air to try to revive himself, to try to keep him awake. Unfortunately, it's not quite enough. And he nods off anyway, only instead of falling on the floor or into the aisle or hitting his head on the seat in front of him or whatever, he falls the wrong way. And tragically, he lands three stories down on the pavement below. They hear something. They, they aren't watching him. They're watching Paul. They're listening to Paul, but they hear something. They look, and he's vanished. And they rush over to the window and they see his lifeless body on the ground below. So they run down the stairs, led by his parents who were there probably, and they, they realize he's dead. Luke tells us he was dead. And Luke was a physician. I think he would probably know. Paul is horrified at what has happened, I'm sure, just like everyone was. But Paul understands we don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Lord. And Paul understood the power of resurrection was available. And Paul embraces that lifeless body and God raises that body back to life. And they go from the most devastating, tragic, experience to the most 
incredible recognition of God's power of resurrection. You can only imagine the utter joy Eutychus' parents must have felt as they saw him raised back to life. And then they go back up to the room and they do what they came there originally to do. Now, I hope no matter how long I preach, I hope it doesn't take God having somebody die to get me to stop. Actually, Paul didn't stop. He just took a recess because he's got to preach until daybreak. But what they do when they go back up into the room is they do what they came there to do. They share the Lord's Supper. They take communion. This is an incredible story. I mean, it starts with, in verse 7, Luke telling us that's what they came there to do. And in Luke 11, or or verse 11, not in chapter 20, verse 11, Luke says they went up and did it. And in between, they just happened to have a visual aid. They happened to have a death and a resurrection. Do you think maybe that communion service was a little more significant than some they'd been in? Do you think that they never forgot that time when they shared communion with the one that Jesus, or that by Jesus' power, had been raised from the dead? What a story. What an incredible thing. This story is way more than a proof text for how or when to take communion. It's a profound revelation for what the Lord's Supper really is. You see, our our time of communion is a present event when we reach back and connect with the past and what Jesus did. And then we reach forward and connect with the future of when he's going to come again. That's what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. There's another thing we need to understand about communion, though. We need to understand what Jesus meant when he said, do this to remember me. You see, in our way of thinking today, when we talk about remembering, we basically think of a mental exercise. You talk about remembering someone, we're talking about thinking about them. You know, thinking about them. Or or maybe maybe we're going to talk about them and and share memories of them. Or or maybe we're going to look at a photo of them, or or, or maybe we're going to share stories of experiences we had with them. And that's all well and good. But that's, that's kind of the way our Western minds think. To remember, or to recall, or to, to recollect. So when we think about remembering Christ in the supper, we think about kind of rehearsing mentally what happened. But when Jesus was with the disciples and he said to them, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, he wasn't speaking in a Western sense. The, the, the background, the context was not, was not Hellenistic, it was Hebraic. It was, wasn't a Greek Western idea. It was a Jewish Eastern way of thinking. And nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament is that idea of remembering or remembrance just talking about a mental exercise. It was much, much more than that. 
It was to re-experience in the present the power and the passion of something that happened long before. It was to, to re-enact virtually, not just to think about something. And, and you can see that. That's obvious from the context in which Jesus told his disciples to do this in remembrance of me. Because it was in the, in the context of a Passover meal. Passover meal was the preeminent remembering exercise, remembering event for the people of God. It, it, and it wasn't just thinking about or talking about or sharing about. It was a time when they came together and they reenacted what had happened generations before down in Egypt. They would, they would dress as if they were ready to go out on a journey as their forefathers had that night of the first Passover. They would prepare the meal just as it had been prepared when they were in slavery in Egypt before God delivered them. And to this day, in, in conservative Jewish households, when they celebrate Passover, they have a time when the youngest child asks the father, the patriarch, why is this night different from all other nights? And why, why do we do these things this way? And when the father, the patriarch, responds to that question, he says, our father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien. And there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. But the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us, imposing hard labor on us. And we cried out to the Lord, our God, in our affliction. And the Lord saw our toil and our oppression. And the Lord, with his mighty hand, he delivered us out of that oppression. The, the answer to that question is so significant. He doesn't say, well, a long time ago in a country far away, our ancient ancestors, he said, we were there and God delivered us and God heard us and God saved us because they were a part of that. And it's very real and it goes back and it brings that experience dynamically into the present. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, it was in that context. It doesn't mean just think about the events of Jesus' death but to experience that in power. The same Christ who sacrificed himself for our sins and was raised by the power of God from the dead meets with us in the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup. Years ago, first church that I served at as preaching minister, uh, we had a, a couple there. He was one of our elders, Frank and Beulah. Sweet delightful people. When, when they were preparing to celebrate their 60th wedding anniversary, they, they invited me to participate in a reaffirmation of their vows. 
They, they got a beautiful home of someone that they knew, uh, like when they had been married. They were married in a home. A hundred years ago, church weddings weren't as prevalent as they are today. And, and we, we came there with just, just a few family and friends that were so special to them. Frank and Beulah and I stood down in, in front of the mantle in the great room of the house. Frank was in his nice suit. Beulah was in a brand new, beautiful dress. And they stood there looking at each other. And they exchanged those vows. Same vows they had done 60 years before. But as I stood there looking at them, observing them, it was clear to me that each of them didn't see what the rest of us saw. As Beulah looked up into Frank's face, she didn't see that, that guy with the wrinkles and the thinning white hair and the hearing aid and the and the slight shuffle in his walk. She saw that tall, strong, handsome young man who had swept her off her feet 60 years before. And when Frank looked down into Beulah's face, he didn't see that white-haired, wrinkled woman with a little stoop in her back, blemishes on her hands. He saw that smooth-skinned, raven-haired, beautiful young lady that had captivated his heart 60 years before. And as they stood there sharing that moment, you could see him get straight and tall. And as she looked up into his face, they were transported back to that time so many years before. They remembered the way that Jesus calls us to remember. This isn't a proof text for when and how you do communion. It's so much deeper than that. It's so much more profound than that. <clears throat> Jesus said, I want you to remember. Not just go through some mental exercise. I want you to physically participate in taking the bread and taking the cup. And I want you to experience with me what I experienced with the 12 that night. Because he tells us, he joins us whenever we take the supper. We're going to do that right now. I'm going to ask the men serving uh, communion if you'd take your places around the room. <clears throat>